Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It is Friday, April 21st, 2023. Uh, as I always uh, like to do before these bonus interviews, I like to uh, you know, read a little headline. Uh, what's in the news of the day? This one, I had a big smile out of this one. Uh, this is a headline in today's Chicago Sun-Times on a piece by Franz Spielman. Uh, Scott Wagesbeck uh, is featured in this one. All of them Scott Wagesbeck. Scotty Wagesbeck of the 32nd Ward. Uh, headline, mayor-elect is warned. Don't mess with city council reorganization. And then there's trash talk. It begins. He's going to whoop her. He's going to whoop Brandon Johnson. He's going to knock him out in the third round. Oh, wait a minute. I'm getting it mixed up. It's That's Tank Davis versus Ryan Garcia. Sorry, folks. I'm already looking ahead to tomorrow's uh, big championship fight. No, Scott Wagesback is talking some serious trash. It has to do with the council reorganization. We've talked a lot about it. Uh, and... Um, so what happened was about two, I want to say a week or so before the uh, mayoral election, before the runoff, uh, the city council reorganized itself. I applauded them. We did a whole, we did like three shows on this one. I had to give them credit. It was like the most, what, uh, coalition-y coalition I've ever seen. I mean, you had MAGA people on there. You had lefties on there. Uh, it was stitched together uh, by Jason Irvin, the uh, uh, chair of the Black Caucus, Michelle Harris, Carlos Mears Rosa, Scott Waggis back. Oh, my God. Raylo was so mad. And Anthony Beal was mad. We had a blast with this story. Uh, and Scott Waggis back, who was persona non grata during uh, the Emanuel years uh, and the daily years, uh, rode his connection with Lori Lightfoot to become chair of the finance committee, replacing Ed Burke. And he made a power move. I got to give Scotty credit. He made a power move. He uh, was part of that coalition and he got to keep his position as finance chair uh, and a very coveted position in the city council. As you know, you get to hire some staffers. You review every budget goes through you, every contract goes through you. He didn't want to give that up, apparently. So uh, he did an interview with Fran Spillman where he let it know, you're going to have to come through me. Okay, <laughs> he's like LeBron James and and the Lakers. If I could use another sport metaphor, you want to win that championship, you got to go through me. Uh, I don't think Brandon Johnson responded. I don't even know um, uh, what the reality is. Like how much pressure is going on behind the scenes? I haven't uh, done the deep dive in that one to actually remove Scott Waggis back. Although I'm sure there's some Brandon Johnson supporters who are saying, "Hey, Brandon, Scott didn't support you for mayor." Why don't you make me the finance chair? I want a whole bunch of staffers and have that little gavel and hit the gavel, uh, hammer that gavel at budget at finance meetings. So it's be interesting to to um, to follow this one. But uh, Scott Wagespeck said, "Don't mess with me." All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring my distinguished guest. He doesn't want to be messed with either. Uh, and uh, so, distinguished guest, introduce yourself, and away we go. Well, this is Greg Pratt with the Chicago Tribune, and I don't mind being messed with because it allows me to work out some of my uh, 
33 years of being pissed off anger. <laughs> okay. I put a confession to start the interview off with. I always thought you were like the mild mannered guy. No, you're Clark Kent. Uh, after he puts the Superman costume on, uh, Greg Pratt, distinguished city hall reporter for the Chicago Tribune, good friend of the show. So much to talk to you about, Greg. I want to talk to you about your latest, uh, revelations about Lori Lightfoot's text, why she keeps texting. I do not know. Uh, I want to talk to you uh, about Paul Vallis's lawsuit. Uh, I want to talk to you about the the teary goodbyes in the city council meeting uh, on Wednesday. Uh, it may be Lori's legacy, but let's start with Scott Wagesbeck. Uh, he wants to maintain his position as chair of the finance committee, and he sort of sent out a warning he, uh, through the Franz Spielman show, sent out a warning to Brandon Johnson, don't mess with me. Your thoughts about all this? You know, I think that um, it's an interesting move. Uh, you would think that Alderman Wagesbeck might be better served calling Mayor-elect Johnson and saying, uh, hey, we can work together. Instead, he was out there after the election criticizing Johnson's tax plans he was out. He's out here telling him, "Don't mess with me." He is waving the uh, the cape at the bull, and he may have a good reason to because um, the reorg is a bit of a house of cards. You know, if you uh, and, and let's be clear, if you're Merrill Lech Johnson, you may not want Waggis uh, back for good reasons and bad reasons. The bad reasons are the obvious political reasons. You weren't with me, so go away. That's not great. You know, because Alderman Wagesback is a pretty competent, decent guy. Um, but leaving leaving that aside, the good reason is, do you share the same values? Do you have the same goals? You want to make sure you can work together. So, you know, Johnson has good reasons to. But if uh, Wagesback is going out there in public and sticking it to him, you know, he's he's uh, – Perhaps doing what Anthony Beal did four years ago, where he talked himself out of a chairmanship. So I don't know how that's going to play out. But the flip side is, okay, uh, Pat Dow wants to be finance committee chairman. Great. Let's say that's true, which I I think that is one of the scuttlebutts. That's something Fran also reported. Who do you put in place of budget? And then how do you deal with all the other uh, all the other uh, children being mad that? They want a seat at this table, not that table. And all of a sudden, there's a food fight in the, in the cafeteria. Yeah, it uh, right. Uh, there's that problem of the dominoes falling and the impact uh, if you move uh, Pat Dowell up. Uh, I, you know, um, I Scott Wagesback, it's very interesting. Uh, he, I thought he did a good job as finance chair, more or less. Uh, and, you know, you look at the, the arc of his career, Greg, uh, which goes back, believe it or not, I, his first, I think he was elected in 2007. You were still in high school. Let's just pause and think about how long ago that was. Uh, man, time flies. So Scotty was elected in 2007. He beat the machine in the 32nd Ward. He was very much out of the independent reformer school. He voted against the parking meters, one of uh, his great claims to fame. Not only did he vote against him, Greg, but he actually did independent research. The only person I know who actually did independent research uh, into the deal itself. And um, I think that when uh, Lori Lightfoot made him the finance chair replacing Ed Burke, it, it spoke well for her. Uh, and then he kind of shifted. This is something we've noticed. Uh, Dave Glowatz comes on once a month on the show. We break down the city council meeting. We analyze what went down in the meetings. We noticed the shift as he went from, obviously, the outsider to the insider. And then the o former insiders, Anthony Beal and Ray Raylo, Raymond Lopez, took on the role that Scott Wagesback used to play and played the outsider, criticizing the mayor's budgets uh, from the sort of independent perspective. Up is down, down is up. Uh, and now I guess if he's removed his finance chair, he's going to go back to being Scott Wagesback, the outsider. So it, Burke may have been right. It, <laughs> what was his line? There's no permanent friends. No, no permanent, permanent enemies. Just enemies, permanent, just interest. permanent interest. Yeah, your thoughts. I think that we should all be listening to Ed Burke all the time, 24-7. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's the sort of insight that you bring me onto this show to talk about and share. Uh, no, I think um, 
I think it's very interesting. You know, they always say, right, that the people you meet on the way up are the people you meet on the way down. And so uh, I don't know how this is going to play out, though, because uh, it is a bit of a house of cards. But Alderman Wagusback is is facing an interesting choice here, and he's going to have to fight for it. And I'm not sure. You know, he's gained some respect from a lot of people. But at the end of the day, the biggest caucus in city council is the what does the mayor want me to do caucus? And that has not changed in at least 30 years. And it's it's not changing right now. Uh, by the way, what do you think Anthony Beal uh, will do uh, in this new administration? Uh, it's a good question. You know, Alderman Beal is a very intelligent man. He's obviously um, seen a lot. Uh, whether or not he plays his cards better than he did last time, you know, he misplayed it. He misplayed his cards during the transition. Now he's sort of a persona non grata for a lot of people, including natural allies. So we'll see. We'll see what he is able to do. But um, he's, he, you know, it's it's just interesting to see a legislator go from being a star chairman to being an outsider and whether or not he can reclaim some insiderness, but he was out there pretty hard for Vallis. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, and just a little, uh, uh, hi- historical parallel, uh, long, long ago, the he, Anthony Beals, the alderman of the ninth ward, which is the far Southeast side, the Rosalind area, a long, long time ago, the alderman of the ninth ward was Robert Shaw. May he rest in peace, Robert Shaw, uh, a great source of mine back in the day. And, um, uh, Robert Shaw made a mistake in 1983 of going with Jane Byrne over Harold Washington. Uh, and uh, he paid a price for it uh, in the Aldermanic elect- election of that year. And uh, he would say many times, I will never make that mistake again. Uh, he ran for re-election in 87, was victorious. I don't think Harold Washington had a closer ally than Robert Shaw after that. So it'll be interesting to see if Anthony Beale uh, tries to follow the Robert Shaw model or just tries to create his own uh, model uh, dealing with Brandon Johnson's victory. All right, uh, let's move on to um, your great work uh, over the last, I forget how many years it's been, but maybe two years. Uh, you have been ten- tenaciously uh, filing requests to see Mayor Lori Lightfoot's uh, texts, and uh, usually they turn them over to you. Uh, they make you wait, uh, but they turn them over to you, and you write stories about them. Uh, and it's just a very interesting window into uh, Lori Lightfoot's behavior as mayor uh, and maybe why she is so unpopular um, with her uh, uh, colleagues in the Chicago City Council. Uh, talk about your latest revelation has to do with Lori Lightfoot's communication with Kim Fox. Take it away, Greg. Well, it's a pretty remarkable story where, and it's it's a good example in some ways about why Lori Lightfoot lost re-election and why she's having the trouble she's having. But to back it up, she's out there, she's campaigning, she's talking to white people, I think on the north side, and she says, Kim Fox has given out wrongful conviction certificates, certificates of innocence like they're candy. Kim Fox sees this tweet and she says, oh, hell no. And she sends a text message to Mayor Lightfoot and says, did you really say this? And if so, that's not true. We don't even hand them out. The judges do. So so don't be telling the lie. Please call me. Mayor Lightfoot says, I'm sorry, but you suck. You are terrible. You are letting people out. Uh, you are letting people out. And we've been frustrated with you letting people out because the first thing they do is they sue the city. And we don't find out about it till it's in the papers. By the way, that's not that's not really true, but uh, that's not that sequence, you know. And so, um, so, and Kim says, you know, you're. And at first, Lori says, "I'm sorry, uh, they didn't quote me accurately, but what I said was inartful, so I apologize." But you suck. And so Kim says, "Lori, your apology was sufficient." The rest of this is bullshit. She uses that word. And uh, and they're going back and forth. And what's astonishing to me from a substantive level is Mayor Lightfoot 
was the police accountability task force person. She was the person who talked about the consent decree and reform. Uh, if, you know, she, she would praise Kim Fox in front of black audiences where Kim Fox is still quite popular and talk about her criminal justice reforms. But when she was in front of white audiences, she would criticize Fox where Kim is seen as, you know, you're somehow responsible for crime. And what's interesting about, about that is, is, um, Mayor Lightfoot is putting on a cape on behalf of wrongful, wrongful convictions, essentially. She is saying, you know, don't let these guys out because they sue. She is saying these guys are actually guilty or we're indifferent to whether they're innocent or not because they turn around and sue. And it's a really remarkable exchange for what the mayor campaigned on and what she isn't uh, and what, what, what she actually governed as. And you know, the, the reader inspired my love of journalism with its stories about wrongful convictions by John Conroy and things of that sort. And Chicago has this horrendous legacy, and there probably are people that have gotten out of uh, prison, and they they did what they were convicted of, but the system cheated. You know, the system is not set up so that I, I know that Ben Jarofsky burned down his house to kill somebody. And I get to torture Ben into, into confessing that. I get to force Ben to listen to Paul Vallis speeches for six hours until he relents and admits uh, I did it. I don't get to do that because, you know, there's, there's, a, uh, there's, there's rules, there's laws, there's order. But, you know, um, the mayor's comments were just shockingly indifferent to, to the history and the legacy of Chicago. And so I, I – um, I think it's funny that they're fighting. I think it's funny that they're the way they're talking to each other, but it really reveals uh, substantive stuff as well, which is what I hope doesn't get lost in these exchanges. No, I, it, I, it does reveal substantive stuff. And just before I move on, I just want to say this six hours of Paul Vallis speeches. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't even have to do that one hour. And I would just pretty much admit to anything. Uh, <laughs> one hour of Paul Vallis. Like, ah, I did it. Okay. Just turn it, turn it off. Uh, Let's just elaborate a bit uh, on the point you made uh, that Lori said one thing uh, to a black audience is about Kim Fox and another thing to white audiences. And uh, I'm not surprised. Um, I guess I can't be because, as I always point out, uh, Lori Lightfoot won my vote uh, in 2019 when she came to the hideout. And... <laughs> told me exactly what she told that lefty audience exactly what she knew they wanted to hear uh mcdumpkey warned me greg he was my partner that those days he's ben it's just a politician you can't believe and i voted for her and she broke pretty much every promise that she made uh so i understand uh politicians say one thing to one adopt to their audience but i you know greg even with that cynical background it's really hard to like run a city. Y you know what I mean? Like have substantive policies if you're so blatantly schizophrenic based on the racial makeup of your audience, particularly in an issue like this where there's like a whole legacy that you got into dealing with how police deal with black people in this city that goes back years and years and years. And presumably she wanted to end that. Uh, and yet she's telling white people on the north side, don't worry. And effectively, I don't want to end that. I mean, it, it really does not, in my humble opinion, does not speak well of Lori Lightfoot. Is there anything positive to be said in your mind out of speaking out of two sides of your mouth this way? No. Uh, you know, the... Um, <clears throat> You know, I do the John Howell show, you know, on WLS every once in a while. And, and I consider myself a friend of their show, you know, and I might make a joke about torture for John Howell might be listening to Brandon Johnson speeches, you know. Uh, but the uh, although I, I don't think he's that conservative, that station is conservative, but I don't care what his values are. I come on to talk to, to talk the news. I think that there's knowing your audience, there's there's speaking, but there's there's actively um, omitting to the point of it's a lie. You know, if you would describe Kim Fox as our great state's attorney, keep on doing what you're doing when you're talking to the Black Women's Expo 
And when you when you're talking to a group of uh, white Northsiders and you say she's giving these out like candy, I don't think there's any real value to that from any level. It's bad politics. It's bad optics. It's disingenuous. It's like, um, you know, the worst I ever saw was I saw Gary McCarthy on the campaign trail in 2019, and he had a great rap about social justice and redlining. And he would talk about redlining and all these problems and about racism and things that are absolutely true that, that, that have built over the decades and centuries. And then, uh, and he would talk about these issues and about why they're important to address. And, and, you know, he might've even sounded like Tony Preckwinkle on some of them. But then one day I heard him say that stuff before one audience. And then I went to see him before the FOP and he talked about Harif Augustus, who was a black man shot in South shore. He was a barber and, you know, it's an interesting case where he had um, he had come up and, and McCarthy said, you guys need support from some poor, innocent barber. And it was a very sarcastic comment about this man who'd been shot about the innocent barber. I'm like, wait, 10 minutes ago, you were talking about uh, redlining and social justice. And now you're mocking a man who got shot by police as the innocent barber because you're taking uh, exception with the way he's being talked about in the community. I somewhat digress. I'm saying to you, what Lori did is not good. I've seen worse. And I love telling that Gary McCarthy story for some reason, just because Gary McCarthy was a clown uh, for a little while there. But uh, but it's not good. It's shameful. You know, people should people need to stand on what they stand on when they run for office. I uh, completely agree with you on this one. And I know I'm swimming against the tide because so many uh, journalists told me that I was naive to believe what Lori Lightfoot said. And the, uh, and I'm like, well, how are we to evaluate a candidate if we just take the assumption that they're going to break every promise they make? What's the point of even list? What's the point of having debates? What's the point of even doing any of this if you just work from the assumption they're going to break every promise they make, which Lori Lightfoot did? Uh, at the hideout. And we, I'm so glad you brought up that story. I don't want to go down that path. Uh, August, Augustus the Barber, who was shot, but nothing, in my humble opinion, exposes the cynicism and the double standards of Second Amendment advocates than the way they reacted to his death. This is a man who was shot because police said they, 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 um, they confronted him because they thought he was armed. And I'm like, well, why, why is that a problem? In the, in, uh, in Trump land, I thought we were supposed. I thought we were supposed to be uh, to have the right to have guns and weaponry on us. So, I- I'm sorry, you just triggered me there, Greg, when you brought that back. No, I mean it was, it's, it's it's shameful. But uh, <clears throat> one of the things I talk about sometimes, one of the spiel's I give is that um, politicians are always on a first date. And what that means is you don't talk about, oh, I didn't change my socks for three days or something. You know, you don't you don't talk about that on your first day. You know, you talk about your good side. You're putting your best foot forward. But I don't show up on a first date and tell people I'm Kevin Costner, you know, because uh, <laughs> there's a difference between what you do on a first date or on a second date and between me coming up. And I'm going to start going on dates and telling people I'm Ben Jarofsky. You know, I'm a reader, writer, you know, I, I got a little uh, work done so I can look a little younger, but the, uh, I dyed my hair, you know, but, but I'm Ben Jarofsky, you know, that, that would be wrong. Yeah, that would be wrong. Uh, <laughs> hope you don't use that line in the John Howell show. Uh, politicians are, are what, like, uh, are always on a first date. Did I get it right? Yeah. I want to get it right. Are always on a first date. Yeah. Uh, it's true though, you know, and so you can yeah. excuse, you can excuse, um, uh, Mary Alex Johnson for saying, you know, um, think about how he was talking about shot spotter, spotter, which is, we want to get rid of it. If we can't, we'll, we'll, we'll see. That's a lot different than saying, um, I'm going to get rid of shot spotter. And then you, you expand the contract by 10 times or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good point. All right. Uh, the other interesting thing uh, that uh, about that story about Lori and her texts uh, is that the, 
you ended up getting the full set of texts from Kim Fox. You did not get the full set of texts from Lori Lightfoot. And why don't you uh, uh, explain exactly what happened and your thoughts about it? Well, um, you know, the the Lightfoot people think are claiming that they didn't pull a fast one on me. I'm not so sure. I think that they might have pulled a fast one on me and the state's attorney's office was able to clarify that for me. And I don't appreciate it. You know, I went in toe to toe with the mayor's office about it because I've been getting the mayor's text for years. Right. And there's a certain reliance that they're being honest and turning over everything. Now this was something I was able to fact check and it turned out that they were holding back on me. And you can imagine I started off this conversation by saying how mad I've been for 33 years of my life. That's not true. Uh, I, I am generally pretty uh, easygoing and mild-mannered, uh, but that really pissed me off. Yeah, well, it's sort of a, I mean, I, I don't want to pick a fight between you and Lori Lightfoot, but it's the second time that I know of anyway. Uh, that, I mean, yeah, the, the first time had to do with uh, Anjanette Young, I want to say, where she said you got it wrong. Uh, and then she had to admit she got it wrong. Uh, I don't know if it was a public confession, but I do know she said she got it that you were right or you weren't wrong. Uh, and now this again, ladies and gentlemen, just so you understand, Greg has been uh, filing Freedom of Information Act requests for Lori Lightfoot's text for a couple of years at least. She's been dutifully uh, turning them over. We assume all of them. Uh, in this particular case, uh, she's. She sent over uh, just a handful of texts about her with her exchanges with Kim Fox, and then Greg went turned to Kim Fox, and immediately Kim Fox turned over all these texts that Lori Lightfoot hadn't turned over to him. And so then, when I believe I'm doing this from memory, Greg, I don't have the story in front of me. Uh, when you asked Lori Lightfoot for an expla explanation, it was some cockamamie thing like there was like a, a mistake. What, what was the exact phraseology? No, for two days. They gave me no comments. And for one and a half days, they didn't say anything at all. I came back and said, hey, this is serious. Give me an answer. Just help me understand it. Did you make a mistake or did you deliberately turn these over? They came back and said no comment. Then I published my story and they came back and said, oh, no, sorry. It was a production error. Production we error. And it's like production error. What is that? Like when the lights go on too early during a Book of Mormon or something? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so this moves into Lori's legacy and I know reporters, you're, you're going to minimize it. My dear friend, Mick Dumkey always minimizes the threat that mayor Daly made to him. Reporters instinctively minimize, uh, any kind of uh, insult to them. I know why we do it because we don't want to be the story. Uh, and we don't want to seem like we're carrying a grudge, uh, in the aftermath uh, so we'll leave all that personal stuff out. But it just seems like Lori Lightfoot leaves government the way she entered government, assuming that everyone's dumber than her. She can get away with anything. You're stupid, ultimately. She could say anything she wants to people. Uh, this is how she treats them in text. Uh, and if anybody says anything to her that is in a slight way offensive, she takes great umbrage. Uh, that's my reading of it. And what's your uh, take on that? I don't think that's unfair. I think that um, it's really unfortunate, you know, because if, uh, well, you know, there's there's a few different issues with Mayor Lightfoot, right? She is, um, and I'll start with some compliments just because of the thing that you talked about, right? Like uh, um, this natural inclination we have to try to be fair she is a brilliant woman. She is very intelligent. She's hardworking and she's had a lot of success. Um, but her big issues are it's not quite clear that she actually knows what she stands for. You know, like um, I'll say something positive about Rahm Emanuel so that you can never book me on your show again. <laughs> Rahm Emanuel came into office with clear ideas what he wanted for CPS. He wanted a longer school day, longer school year. And, and some other things, you know, and he ended up fighting with, with the CTU, but he, he had clear ideas. Mayor Lightfoot on schools, what, what does she want from schools? She wants happy students and happy schools and happy buildings, which is not a, 
not a policy. It's not a plan. It's not an idea. Everybody from Betsy DeVos to Stacey Davis Gates agrees with that, right? We want students learning and growing in schools. That That's not really a policy. And, and broadly speaking, Mayor Lightfoot did not have clear ideas. The clearest thing that Mayor Lightfoot is, is about is working people. She does care for weak working people. That's why you see some of the union stuff, like the fair work week, like the the minimum wage, like some ordinances to protect hotel workers. And aside from that, it's pretty fuzzy. And then the other part is, you know, she has no ability whatsoever to tolerate criticism if she thinks that, if she gets it into her head that the criticism isn't um, helpful, uh, if she gets it into her head that, you know, Scott Wagespat calls her and tells her, hey, this was a bad idea, she can be okay with that. If Scott Wagespat tells another alderman that, she's going to be mad. If he says it in publicly and it gets out to the press, she's going to throw him off a bridge because that's uh, it just doesn't work that way. And, and then she holds the grudge and she starts to um, think in those terms. And I will joke sometimes that Mayor Lightfoot thinks that all of her critics are either propped up by Ed Burke or Stacey Davis Gates. And there's no in the middle. And it's like, you know, a lot of people have independent thoughts and independent mechanisms, and they may agree with you on X, but not Y, and they work with you. And so maybe it's not the best idea to think that everybody is a puppet of somebody else. But that's uh, all of that speaks to why she has struggled and why she didn't get reelected. And it speaks a little bit to what you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, that was very fair of you. Everything. See that, ladies and gentlemen, that's a Chicago journalist talking. Uh, and Chicago journalists will not reveal any kind of personal animus <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, I'm the same way. Like people go, Ben, you hate Rahm Emanuel. I go, I don't hate Rahm Emanuel. I don't even know the guy. I only met him like, well, I did a story about him over 20 years ago. I haven't never had a conversation with him. But, you know, I feel compelled. Even me, even lefty me feels compelled. Uh, so... Four years of Lori. You covered her from the start to the finish. Uh, you had a great column, or it's not a column, but you had a great news article the other day uh, that talked. I didn't, I didn't track it down. I didn't, I didn't believe you when I first read it. I go, is this true? That Rom left in his final speech, uh, sort of warning about uh, the teachers union. He didn't name them by name. I'm like, I think Greg's been smoking some weed, man. It's April 20th. I don't believe he did that. So you got to know I fact-checked you. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's right. <laughs> Rom gave this, like, veiled warning uh, about people who try to stand in the way of my progress on schools. What a joke. Anyway, it's, uh, and uh, so it's like, and now Brandon Johnson, you pointed this out, uh, who is of the, the teachers' union, is effectively holding on to um, that seat that Rom was warning us. <laughs> and I guess the city just ignored his warning. Like, how, what happened with Lori Lightfoot, in your humble opinion, when you look at these four years, what happened that this city went from eventually one extreme, which is Rahm Emanuel Democrats, I would say that's one extreme to the other extreme, which is like Bernie Sanders Democrats. Um, what happened during Lori's reign that led to that? Well, she polarized the city, right? She angered everybody. I, I, Sue Garza gave the quote that summarizes the Lightfoot administration, and she gave it to you, where she said that this is a person that she had never met a person who could piss off everybody, cops, police, teacher manufacturing business leaders, and that's it. I don't support her. And, you know, that that encapsulates it. And it created a sort of vacuum of, okay, we don't want this lady who's out there. People, um, people are drawn to clear messages and clear personalities. In good times, they'll accept the Mayor Daly as like, you know, um, that's just the guy, you know, that that's the guy, that's the pillar, you know, he doesn't have to be magnetic. And of course he was not magnetic. He does not have to be, um, he does not have to, you know, be president Obama as a speaker, you know, he can, uh, 
he can coast. But in bad times, people and in bad times and in competitive times, people are drawn to messages, clear, simple messages. And Paul Vallis had a clear message. Brandon Johnson had a clear message. And uh, and so she alienated everybody in the polls. Uh, polls, P-O-L-E-S, like the North and South, the East and West, the uh, uh, whatever, um, shifted and, and it unleashed a bunch of strong feelings and Brandon won because this is a center-left city. You think so? Center-left? Yeah. Uh, we came very close to going center-right. Very close to going center right. Yeah, but you uh, know, not that close in the scheme of things. About five points, you know. It's uh, it is close though. It's absolutely. I mean, that's why Brandon Johnson is picking a centrist daily administration staffer to be his chief of staff. Yeah, <laughs> I had a field day with that earlier. Uh, I urge everybody, if you haven't, to check out our "Oh, what a week!" I uh, went on a big riff about that. Uh, yeah, I guess, um, uh, again, it's Mick Dumkey Day on the Ben Jarowski Show. Mick, um, I did this uh, analysis where I was taking a look at the lakefront vote. And my point was, if you start on the North Lake, on the North Lakefront vote, I should say. So if you start in the loop and go north, the further you go north, the greater Brandon Johnson's vote is. And uh, so I said to Mick, I go... I guess white people further north are more uh, lefty than they are further south. Uh, and then he pointed out something to me, which uh, I have to give him credit for. He came right back. He goes, well, you know, Ben, there are more than uh, white people uh, that live on the north side of Chicago. And the further north you go, the more of them there are. And <laughs> I was like, good point, McDumkey. Uh And the basic point is that uh, white people, wherever they live, pretty much went for the Vallis message. Uh, I mean, we've concentrated like uh, the white people, the Mount Greenwood area and, the, and, the, and on the northwest side where it was like in some precincts, Greg, over 90 percent, like 94 percent if you've seen those precincts. Uh, but your thoughts about the racial uh, divide uh, in this past election? Well, I mean, it, it's a key factor in why Brandon Johnson won. You know, he was able to rally the black community, which Paul tried to do by bringing out Jesse White in a terrible campaign commercial. Uh, I thought it was a terrible commercial, you know. And now for a message from Jesse White. And it was like, what? You know, like, you know, um, if Pat Quinn were on a citywide ballot tomorrow, he can get himself 80,000 votes. And I, I believe that very strongly. But if Pat Quinn endorses uh, Ben Jarofsky for dog catcher, you know how many votes that's going to get you? One from no. <laughs> from Pat Quinn. You know, like yeah. like it, 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 there are things, and I think Jesse White, who runs the Secretary of State's office, and people like, um, I, I don't think that people go, "What does Jesse White want? What does Jesse White think?" I mean, there are other validators for that. You know, in the world of, in in politics over on the north side. When the progressives are trying to get, and this was true four years ago, it's going to be less true as the years go on, but David Orr was a highly sought-after name for mailers because certain Northsiders um, see that validation. And Vallis was trying to do that with uh, with Jesse White and Jamal Green, and you know, the less that's said about that, the better. But the, uh, uh, you know, it's a very segregated city, right? And um, it's not surprising that black voters voted for the black candidate. And then, you know, um, it's not surprising that a lot of white voters voted for the white candidate. Um, and then a lot of the more progressive and younger whites voted for the progressive candidate, which was Brandon Johnson. Yeah, fair enough. Although I, my opinion, uh, using Jesse white, uh, was not so much about getting black people to vote uh, for Paul Vallis. It was sort of reassuring white people. Oh, yeah, I can vote for him, and I'm not a racist. Uh, I absolutely believe that's the sort of psychological message that was sent out. Hey, it won over Richard Durbin. So it it worked at least with one white person. But I don't even think he's a voter in Chicago, Richard Durbin. Is his voting address, do you know, in Chicago? That's a good question. I think it is, but I don't know. Oh, okay. 
I said corrected then. Um, uh, anyway, uh, we mentioned uh, Paul Vallis. Uh, we'll close with the city council uh, as a uh, high school cafeteria. We'll, uh, because that, that gives some people something to listen to the rest of this interview for. But let's get to Paul Vallis. Story broke today, uh, right before, or I saw it right before we started this uh, conversation, uh, Greg, that uh, Paul Vallis was suing uh, a former campaign uh, strategist for him. I think, I forget how much money was at stake. Uh, 600000 something. It's about 700000 just a little less. Okay. Uh, and uh, this... Uh, strategist was supposed to help him with uh the the black vote uh get to get the black vote to vote for me obviously the strategist didn't do a very good job just on that part of it alone uh, brandon johnson as we said got over 80 percent of the black vote i think um what else should we uh, take away from this lawsuit that about paul vallis and his campaign well you know the vallis people and vallis supporters had a lot of fun picking on Brandon Johnson over his unpaid uh, water bill to the city of Chicago. Meanwhile, Paul was talking about himself as a management expert and he clearly wasn't managing his campaign well enough. You know, it's, it's really an embarrassing situation. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. And, you know, he's, he's, he's alleging that, that this uh, consultant, um, you know, basically stole $700,000 from him. And, you know, that's, uh, that is really embarrassing uh, on every single level. Um, the flip side of that, and we put it in our story and we put it up high, this wasn't just a guy off the street. This is somebody who Paul Vallis was talking about as his potential chief of staff. And that's really astonishing to me too, you know, because like during the campaign, Paul was getting hit over his Twitter and what his Twitter and Facebook were doing. And, you know, um, and I broke those stories and, and I think I'm the only mainstream reporter who touched those stories, but the, the, uh, which, um, you know, I, I fought it out with the Vallis people. They're like, that's not fair. That's not a story. I'm like, of course it's a story. Um, but, and, uh, other, there were other media outlets that thought it wasn't a story. Point is, you know, you're like, I'm going to manage the city, but I can't manage my own campaign. I can't manage my own social media, which is my face and my name going out there with what is supposed to be my message. Uh, it, it's not a good week for, uh, for Vallis. Yeah. I, uh, we, I could tell you right now, we talked a lot about just say, I know we're not mainstream, but we talked a lot about those stories you wrote and gave you credit for them. And, uh, it was part of an ongoing theme, uh, that I had and putting aside whatever thoughts I had about Paul Vallis, from the days he was Mayor Daly's uh, CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, and I have very strong thoughts about that, or his role as a re in the Revenue Department with the creation of the TIFs, and I have very strong feeling about that. Um, I'm speaking for myself, not Greg Pratt, obviously. What disturbed me the most about Paul Vallis is that he spent the last year and a half, the most euphemistic way of saying it is playing footsie with the uh, alt-right with um, some pretty extreme people that uh, most folks in Chicago would have no tolerance for. Uh, and each time he was caught in an embarrassing moment, he came up with some cockamamie excuse that just strained all credibility. So for instance, the ones like he, at one point, I think he said that his, his Facebook page was hacked. I think he, they put that out there that it was actually hacked. Uh, never obviously any... we were hacked. He said, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's unbelievable. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, uh, Kelly Garcia, shout out. Uh, she broke the story about his going out to Awake, Illinois. Uh, and he said he didn't realize what that group was, which any any Google search would have told you what that uh, group was. So uh, I almost wish that he just owned up to it. Go, you know, I'm sympathetic to their point of view as opposed to... Uh, playing this uh, strange game. I, well, uh, if I may, a couple quick things. Uh, you know, first of all, I'm in the uh, Casa Jorovsky and, you know, um, and Casa Reader, <laughs> and it's not a diss 
you know, I read and follow and link to the reader's great work, including Kelly's stories on that. When I say mainstream media outlets, I am talking about the big papers and the TV stations and it's, it's, it, it's not a diss, you know? Um, no, I didn't, wasn't a, I didn't take it as a diss at all. Uh, I say the same things myself. You speak, you were speaking my, you were speaking Ben talk when you said that. I always talk about lately. I've totally flipped my attitude about the Tribune, and I, I cannot stand your editorial page. You know that, but I always give the young journalists, particularly you and Alice, a lot of credit. Uh, and I always try to point out to my listeners: there's a difference between a reporter who's covering a story and an editorial. So. Uh, I hear you, man. But yeah, no, the mainstream press in Chicago is one thing and the alternative press, it's something completely else. All right, let's close with our favorite metaphor about the city council, uh, that it is just, uh, if you really want to understand the city council, you just have to think of it as a high school cafeteria or a high school senior lounge or whatever uh, high school room you want. Uh, it, they're all different like types of kids grown up mean girls bullies jocks you know the cool kids that varies from person to person uh and they have all their petty grievances last wednesday they put aside all their grievances uh greg and as i said on the show it was like um uh, uh the last day of school they were sobbing with nostalgia and feeling just very loving about everybody they'd been spent the last four years fighting and saying nice things about each other uh and metaphorically signing each other's uh yearbooks with loving uh comments uh i <laughs> i got a great kick out of reading the coverage you were there in the city council why don't you uh, uh describe to folks what it was like well for one day everybody loved everybody uh nobody had anything bad to say about Ed Burke, in fact, when they gave him a standing ovation and applauded, Mayor Lightfoot stood up and applauded, which was uh, interesting. I mean, you know, and classy, you know, you're supposed to, um, you know, at a funeral, which I suppose it's a funeral for the last four years. It's a funeral for the outgoing term. Um, you are supposed to have some respect. Um, but it was interesting. You know, everybody loved everybody. Uh, and Mayor Lifo didn't speak about anybody, which I thought was really interesting that she didn't use the opportunity to to raise her profile or to make amends for not make amends, but to make an argument about why we were a good mayor to say thank you. Thank you, Alderman, for working with me through the last four years. And I thought I thought it was astonishing, but not surprising that she didn't. And I'm going to push back on you. I don't think it was classy to stand up for it. First of all, she owes her election to Ed Burke. So if she was going to stand up, she should have said, she should have said, thank you, Ed Burke for getting uh, indicted. Otherwise I wouldn't be mayor. Okay. So I ran against you. Uh, I don't believe anybody should have stood up and give Evan Ed Burke uh, a standing ovation. I believe that Ed Burke has never been held accountable for the role he played in council wars, which was one of the most cynical acts of, racism that I've seen in my 40 years of living in the city of Chicago. Uh, I believe it would have been classy if Lori Lightfoot had, after Raylo said those wonderful things about her, uh, if she had said, you know what, Raylo, we fought and I, we were, we were, we were caught swearing at each other on tape, but you know what? I always believed you were looking out what you thought was the best interest to see. That would have been a classy act, you got, in my humble opinion. You know what I'm saying? Standing up for Ed Burke. What the hell is that all up? What is? Why was anybody giving Ed Burke? Uh, I need help on this, Greg. I need help understanding why anybody would give uh, Ed Burke a standing O. Go. Well, Ed Burke has collected favors for 50 years. Ed Burke used to loan out his staff members if you wanted somebody to help you out so that when the time came, he could ask you for something. So, you know, that that's a big part of it, too. You know, I mean, um, politics is high school, though. I mean, think about poor Derek Curtis shoots himself in the hand. And what does he want out of life? He wants the mayor that he serves to call him and say, I'm sorry, how's your boo-boo? And she didn't do it. And, you know, for 50 years, if somebody shot themselves in the hand, you know who the first person to call him was and to say, 
you know, put some ice on it and Burke. So, you know, that that's sort of what you were seeing play out there as well. And there there's people who would say that Burke was very generous. And there's people who would say that he was a cynical octopus stretching out in the sea and grabbing as many fish as it could. Yeah, that's a, a great metaphor. Uh, I noticed, by the way, that uh, Scott Wagesbeck will close with how he started. I uh, took a little chapter out of Ed Burke's book. Uh, I saw pictures on Instagram of Scotty giving a tutorial to the rookie aldermen who were coming in. You know, they, he brought them into the, uh, the back room where the finance offices are, uh, and they had budgets there. And they said he was really did a great job giving me that. I'm like, Scott's learned a thing or two from Ed Burke. He's lining up those votes, those rookie votes, you know, uh, maybe thinking about that move when he has to take on Brandon Johnson. And maybe those rookie aldermen will say, you know what, uh, Mayor Johnson, uh, Scott was good to me, and I'll vote for him. Uh, so maybe uh, here, that's the best I could do for Ed Burke. How about that, Greg? We'll close with me say something kind of remotely nice about Ed Burke that he taught Scott Waggers back a thing or two. How about that? So you're not going to be supporting Ed Burke for state's attorney in 2024? <laughs> Let's get that rumor started. I didn't support, I didn't support him in 1980, okay? <laughs> you weren't even born yet. He ran in 1980. He ran against Richie Daly. Oh, God, help us <laughs> What a choice. I didn't actually live in Chicago, so I couldn't vote in that election uh, at the time. I lived in Connecticut. All right. Very good, Greg Pratt. Outstanding work. Uh, one thing that John Howell and I agree on is that you do a great job and you're a great guest uh, on a radio show or a podcast. So thank you very much for coming on the show. It's always my pleasure. And the other thing I, I would say about the Howell show is he always plays the clip of Mayor Lightfoot calling me reckless and irresponsible. Uh, when he brings me on. So, you know, that's kind of fun. I got to up my game. I got to battle Howell. I'm going to get that <laughs> clip and play as well. All right, Howell, you're on, baby. Uh, all right, thank you very much. That's Gregory Pratt. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.